Luke chapter 12, we begin reading at verse 13 and read through verse 40. So Luke 12, beginning at verse 13. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother, that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what she shall eat, neither for the body what she shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothe the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, and neither be ye of doubtful mind, for all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let your loins be girded about, and your lights burning, and ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he shall return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants, whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily 
I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meat and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. So far we read in Luke 12. The text to which I call your attention is Luke 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the development of sin that we have observed in the past couple generations has come at a speed that is an astounding indication of God's judgment in giving people over to their own ungodliness. Conservative Christians, more and more, are becoming a suppressed minority in our country. We see increasing numbers of persecution involving Christian businessmen and women and the denial of religious freedom to our Christian faith and principles which necessarily apply to every aspect of life. We understand in the light of Scripture that what we are seeing is exactly what Jesus identified as signs of the last time the days in which the Lord is accomplishing all things with a view to Christ's return. In fact, we hear the footsteps of our Savior in all these events. Christ is coming. We also understand that there are other events, naturally frightening to us and our children, that have to take place before the culmination of history in the church's salvation and the world's judgment. Persecution will increase in our country, even as it has in many other nations. It's fitting, therefore, to consider a very comforting passage, a blessed reminder of the certainty of the victory that is ours. And that passage is our text this evening. Luke 12, verse 32, where Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So we hear his exhortation this evening. Fear not. Notice with me, first of all, the grave concern. Secondly, the little flock and finally, the wonderful promise. We notice, first of all, the grave concern that underlies Christ's word to us. He addresses this grave concern that is ours. That grave concern is even expressed in our text with the words fear, with the word fear. 
Fear, in general, is a powerful emotion. The Lord is not speaking of the Christian concept of the fear of God, which is a fear rooted in love, a fear that comes to expression in reverence and awe, but he's speaking of a fear which is characterized by great apprehension, even terror. Fear is an emotion that's caused by our awareness of some evil that's threatening us. Maybe that evil is avoidable. It might be a threat to us from which we can run and hide. There are other forms of fear which we might be compelled to face. There are times when we might be compelled to defend ourselves or our loved ones. In other cases, fear is physically unavoidable. The man or woman who is stricken with incurable bone cancer, for example, fears the unavoidable suffering that comes along with it. The evil he fears cannot be escaped. But fear is always accompanied by the desire to avoid as much as possible the fear, the evil that threatens. The, the man who fears will do whatever possible to avoid the evil that he fears. So when our Lord says to us, fear not, little flock, he's confronting a definite fear. A fear which brings anxiety, a fear troubling to the heart and mind. And then we must notice that this word of Christ is not for everyone. The entire section which we read, verses 13 through 40, deals with seeking the kingdom of God. And that over against seeking the things of this world. He addresses the church, those who seek the things of the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean that there's a conflict between the things of this earth and, and the things of the kingdom of God. The things of this earth simply serve the things of the kingdom of God. The conflict for us is in the seeking. We children of God are often concerned about the things of this present time. We might be concerned about the economy, especially when a decline in the economy threatens our own portfolios or our economic situation. We might be concerned about the radically increasing costs of health care, especially when we are self-employed, or facing the trials medically and bearing the costs of treatment. We become concerned as we see more and more the corruption in places of government with large corporations, large corporate interests in the pockets of our government officials. We realize that corruption affects judgment. We read about that in the Proverbs in many places. We've, we've seen it in history. We certainly become concerned at the increasing lawlessness in our society. We see the increasing apostasy in the church of our day. We suffer departures of some in our own congregations and families. 
And we recognize that all these things are but the beginning of sorrows because the Bible tells us that in this way, the time of the great beast of Revelation 13 shall be ushered in. And of that great beast, which is Antichrist, we read in Revelation 13, verses 16 and 17, and he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, bond and free, to receive a mark in their forehead, in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Jesus also warns us in Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. You can well imagine when God's children are not able to buy nor sell, their temptation will be to worry. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? With what shall we be clothed? How shall we be saved? But against all such questions and worry, the Lord tells us, take no thought for your life, what she shall eat or what she shall drink, neither for the body, what she shall put on. The Lord knows that she have need of these things. But rather, seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. In the measure that you and I do that, beloved, we will understand and find comfort in the words of Jesus in our text for tonight. If you do not seek the kingdom, this text has no comfort for you whatsoever. The word of God is full of promises, but those promises are particular and they are uncompromising. If you do not seek the kingdom of God, this text will give you nothing in the terrible days of the man of sin. But when you do seek the kingdom of God, Jesus says to you, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's speaking to you who are seeking the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't mean that we are seeking to get saved. Those who seek the kingdom are already saved. Those who seek the kingdom are even now in this world spiritual citizens of that kingdom that's established through the cross, resurrection, and exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. To seek the kingdom of God means that we set our hearts on the things of the kingdom and its righteousness, that we walk as citizens of the kingdom of, of heaven in the midst of a world of darkness, proclaiming the word of the kingdom as Christ's witnesses. To seek that kingdom means we daily strive to enter that kingdom. We don't say, oh, I entered it 25 years ago. 
That's something we do every day. The admonition of Christ stands always before us. Enter ye in at the straight gate, the narrow gate. If that's your daily testimony, if that's your confession in the midst of this world, you must expect opposition. The world, and I include in that the false church, hates the kingdom of God and the citizens of his kingdom. That kingdom is heavenly. There is nothing earthly, nothing temporal, nothing carnal about that kingdom. It's not of this world. For those who love this world, God's kingdom has nothing. It's all spiritual, heavenly, glorious, eternal. The king of that kingdom is the exalted Christ. He merited that kingdom in the way of his perfect obedience, even unto the death of the cross. Christ rules that kingdom. Even while being hated by the world and crucified afresh by the man of sin and all his followers. Don't be deceived by the enticements of this world. Even though the false church puts on a cloak of righteousness and praise and speaks of its love for God and for the kingdom of God by which they mean the kingdom of Antichrist. They hate the kingdom of God. That's why in the measure you seek the kingdom of God in every sphere of life, you must expect opposition. That was true when Jesus spoke these words. That's true today. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 tells us, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution." And even in greater measure will that be true in the days just prior to Christ's return. Already with astounding speed, that which calls itself church today has become more openly anti-Christian, anti-Bible. The church is increasingly deceived by the talk of the world. Don't preach this way. Don't pray that way. Be tolerant. See this new way. And don't you dare sing those terrible songs, that, those psalms that cry out for God's judgment upon the wicked. The spirit of Antichrist strives for the realization of its own kingdom. The kingdom of man without Christ without the salvation that's only through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Yes, we are in the days when this fear of which the Lord is speaking is very real. We see the forces of darkness gathering. The signs of Christ's return unfolded in Matthew 24, Revelation 6, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, 2 Thessalonians 2, Revelation 13, are, are events that are rapidly developing in the world and in the church of our day. The man of sin is rising to his feet, 
and Satan has been loosed to intensify his attacks upon Christ's church. And if you seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and condemn the unfruitful works of darkness and stand in the way of the realization of that proud kingdom of man, the world will hate you as it hates God's Christ and will persecute you and will say all manner of evil against you falsely for Christ's sake. It's a natural reaction of our human physiology and perspective to be concerned about these things, even to be somewhat frightened. That reaction is human. Doesn't make you less of a Christian. I don't know how much longer the Lord gives me to minister in the midst of his church, but the way things are developing, if I don't see persecution personally, I fully expect those servants of Christ who follow me will. I would expect that the first wave of significant persecution will be the removal of our tax-exempt status and the closure of our Christian school. But I would also look for those things to be accompanied by, if not followed by, stiff fines and jail time, with the persecution only progressing from there but Jesus says, fear not. Fear not. You notice he doesn't say, fear not, because it won't happen to you. He doesn't say, fear not, for what happens in North Korea and China and Saudi Arabia and Nigeria and Pakistan will never happen in Dune, Iowa. These things will certainly come to pass. They must before the Lord returns. And many are the evils that the ungodly world power will have at its disposal to inflict upon you. We won't be able simply to run and hide. Our own government has used drones in other countries to hunt people down and assassinate them. They're entirely capable of finding you who will stand out as an enemy of the state, not for any rebellion against the state, but simply because you're a Christian. From every earthly point of view, you have much reason to fear. They will affect your very position and place in this world. And yet our Lord says, fear not, fear not, fear not, even though they take all that you have. If it be your own flesh and blood that turn against you and hate you, though you lose any possibility of buying or selling, fear not. That's our text. That's what Jesus says to you and to me as we face the terrible signs of Antichrist and the great tribulation. 
of the end of the ages. Though the world considers you unworthy to occupy the very ground on which you stand, fear not. Be faithful, little flock. Little flock. What a beautiful name. The Lord gives his church when he addresses her. Little flock. You know, from a, near, from a purely natural point of view, that's not such a nice name. Because sheep are among the most stupid of all animals. And yet the name is beautiful because it's given by the good shepherd who loves his own. Throughout the ages, the church has been called by that name in that form of David's personal confession. It was expressed in Psalm 23. Many times through the mouth of his prophets, the Lord calls his people my flock, the flock of my pasture. It's an address of love. In the prophecy of Isaiah, this is beautifully portrayed in, in Isaiah 40, verse 11, with the words, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. How applicable to the church of Christ is this figure of a little flock. As a flock is a unity with diversity, so is the church. Many sheep with varied characteristics all form a unity and are essentially one. There's a variation of young and old, strong and weak, those demanding meat and those who still require milk. And yet no matter how old and mature a sheep get, of the flock gets, he remains a sheep, one of the most foolish of all animals. Without a shepherd or someone to give guidance, a sheep will wander to its own destruction. They're creatures totally dependent upon their shepherd for their protection and safety. The flock would soon be destroyed were they not in the care of the good shepherd who knows each of them by name who leads them and lays down his life for them that they might live forever. And with intentional emphasis here, the Lord designates his flock as little. Always the flock of Christ is little. It's true, sometimes the Bible presents that church as an innumerable host. God promised to Abraham a seed that would be as the stars of the heaven and the sand upon the seashore for multitude. And as that prophecy is fulfilled, it is true. Indeed, John in his vision on the island of Patmos, Revelation 7, saw the church as 144,000 at any given point in time throughout history. Great is that army of the saints that march through history to their destination in that house of many mansions. And yet, in comparison with the world at any given time, 
that church, the flock of Christ, is extremely small. But a remnant that can barely be seen against the vast mountainside that is called church, there's but a speck that constitutes that little flock to whom Christ speaks. Look at Noah and his family. All of eight souls. And all the millions around them were exposed as ungodly reprobates who hated God and his people. In the land of Canaan, little Israel was surrounded by the wicked. A little flock is the church of Christ. And let's remember that we don't see the true picture by looking at the contrast between the world and the church institute. That line of demarcation runs right through the church institute. All is not little flock that gathers within the walls of the, of the nominal Christian church. There are wolves and dogs and swine behind some very well-shaped mass that look like sheep. There are hypocrites within the walls. So much is that the case that the church is usually the smallest when it appears the biggest. How many are the thousands who have forsaken the kingdom, denied Christ and his cross, apostatized from the truth, and been swallowed up by the false church? How many are there who, while outwardly bearing the name of Christ, are not seeking the kingdom of God, but their own lusts and pleasure. How small, ridiculously small, is the number of those in the nominal church who maintain the truth of God's sovereign grace and salvation in the Christ of God. In the sight of the world, we as church look ridiculous. Even before the false church we are despised. And how much more will that be the case at the end of time? When you and I are forced to make the choice between the things of this world and the things of the kingdom. When we are forced to take the mark of the beast or go without groceries and shelter. How small will the number be then? We must expect that many in the nominal church will fall away. So would you and I if Christ did not speak his word to us. Fear not, little flock. Christ spoke those words almost 2,000 years ago. And he is speaking them today by the preaching of the gospel. Do you hear him? If Christ does not speak this word, we would certainly contradict it. When Antichrist gives us the ultimatum, receive the mark or suffer the consequences, if we have not heard the voice of Jesus, if we have rejected the preaching of his gospel, 
then we shall surely say, I must work. I must have a job. I must eat. I must live. But the good shepherd addresses his church. Fear not, little flock. You are indeed small. Small in the eyes of the world, weak in your own eyes. But you're little because I want it so. I charge you to bear testimony of me always until I put a stop to it by means of the man of sin. But don't expect the world to change or the flock to become big, for my strength will be made perfect in weakness. Fear not, little flock, for I have a wonderful promise for you. In the way of your seeking the kingdom, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. When you seek the kingdom and the enemy threatens you, as will indeed be the case, then fear not. Maybe you say, well, those are nice words, but I'm still afraid. How can I get rid of that fear? How can I not be afraid when the enemy still seeks my life? Your fear can be removed only by a stronger conviction, a spiritual conviction that Christ himself gives us by his grace and the word of his power. And that spiritual conviction is hope. It's a conviction that's firmly established in the knowledge and confidence in your faithful Heavenly Father. Hope is the consideration more than sufficient to drive away all fear. And that hope lays hold of his word. I have given you the kingdom. The Lord speaks here of the spiritual kingdom for which you long, the eternal kingdom of our of the living God, it's the inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away. The glory of that kingdom is so unspeakably magnificent and precious that all the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to it. Everlasting glory, the tabernacle of God with men, as it embraces the whole creation in the new heavens and the new earth. No more sin, no more tears, no more sorrow. That's the kingdom which the Lord promises you. There is absolutely nothing we can lose on this earth that can begin to compare with that kingdom. He will give it you. He will give it to you exactly in the way of your losing all. Nothing can deprive you of that gift. For a gift it is. You need not fight for it. You cannot possibly pay for it. You can do nothing to realize it. The enemy, even Antichrist himself, can do nothing to prevent its coming. 
When you have lost all, be it even through death, your Father will give you everything. Fear not, little flock. Let me put this promise even more emphatically, as Jesus does. That kingdom has already been given to you. How so? It's been given in your Father's good pleasure. Literally, it has been the good pleasure of your Father to give you the kingdom. God's good pleasure is his eternal counsel as God himself has pleasure in it. We see only a speck of that counsel of, at any given moment in time. But in his counsel, God sees everything. He sees everything eternally. What is but a passing moment for us is eternal for God. Moreover, we've often seen that his counsel is all comprehensive. It includes all things, even the rise of the man of sin and the great tribulation that the church must endure. And in that eternal counsel, which is unchangeable and in which God delights, in that counsel, he has already given you the kingdom. That's why God works all things. The enemy, sin, evil, death, everything for the purpose of giving you the realization of his promise. Fear not, little flock. Should it be your father's good pleasure that you live on earth during that terrible time of great tribulation, then take that present moment, as hopeless as it might appear, and put it in the whole picture, the grand reality of God's good pleasure. Boys and girls, do you remember the dream of Nebuchadnezzar? We read of that as Daniel interprets it in Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 35. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. Why was it terrible? Because that great image was the image of the various kingdoms of Antichrist, that last of which we are yet to see. But then Daniel saw what Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. A stone was cut out without human hands, which smote that image on the feet of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled 
the whole earth. Daniel saw there the whole of God's good pleasure. That great image, the feet of which are the final manifestation of Antichrist, appears for only a little while. Where are those who, in the language of Psalm 2, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us? Where are the anti-Christian powers of this world's history? Where is Babel? Where is Assyria? Where is Babylon? Where is that great kingdom of the Medes and Persians, of Greek Macedonia, of the Roman Empire, and all the mighty men who have persecuted the church? Where are they? They're in hell, wailing and gnashing their teeth, crushed to powder under the mighty hand of God. Why? Because God sent that great stone cut out of the mountain without human hands. He came to save, but also to execute judgment and justice. That stone crushed the image to powder. Antichrist? He too, and all who serve him, will be crushed by that same stone. That stone, you know, is Christ, isn't it? We stand with him and in him, having been given to him by the Father. Fear not, little flock. He who in love gave his Son unto death for you, he will give you the kingdom. It is his good pleasure. Seek that kingdom. If you do not, you haven't heard this word. Then you'd better fear. But if this hope is in you, if you seek the kingdom of God, then fear not. Your salvation is sure. Fear not. Amen. Gracious Father, we give thanks to thee that thou holdest us in thine hand and that thou hast given us even a little flock in this place to our good shepherd, our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and has promised us that inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that never fades away, reserved in heaven for us. Father, grant that we go forth in courage, fearing not, as we look to thee, the God of our salvation, for Jesus' sake. Amen.